0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Romans chapter six, beginning in verse five, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author Kevin DeYoung once wrote, apart from our union with Christ, every effort... To imitate Christ, no matter how noble and inspired at the outset, inevitably leads to legalism and spiritual defeat. But once we understand the doctrine of union with Christ, you see that God doesn't ask us to attain what we are not. He only calls us to accomplish what already is. The pursuit of holiness is not a quixotic effort to do just what Jesus did. It's the fight to live out the life that has already been made alive in Christ. So, while you have your Bibles with uh, open, will you turn with me to uh, John chapter three? It's a a couple of books back. John chapter three, and we'll look at America's favorite verse, verse sixteen. John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world, but he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is perhaps the best known scripture in the New Testament in the world around us, right? And we have all heard it before. We have seen people holding up signs at football games that say John 3.16. We have seen Tim Tebow, right, when he played college football and professional football, wear John 3.16 on his eye black. In fact, it was because of him on one game that the, the, the verse John 3.16 was Googled over 96 million times, right? Just about everybody's heard of this verse and knows this verse. And all of you, I think, could recite it without even looking at it. In fact, most of you would probably recite it in the King James because that's how you learned it, right? And this is the scripture that so many people use to evangelize the lost, to express the hope that we as Christians have. And it is a good scripture for that because it does illustrate God's love, God's agape love, to love us in spite of us. And it does point to the fact that Christ was given to rescue the lost, And it does help us to see the exclusive nature of Christianity because the object of our faith must then be Christ. Without him, we don't have eternal life. And it does point to the problem of humanity that those who do not believe, who are still in their sin, will what? They will perish. It's an inescapable conclusion. And it draws, this text draws our attention to what we really need, a new life in Christ. This text is theologically loaded and it's helpful for witnessing to other people. And contrary to many people's opinions, it affirms the sovereignty of God in salvation. Many people will put the emphasis on the word whosoever, but really the Greek, if you look at the grammar, does not even, even emphasize that at all. The thing that is emphasized is the believing ones because it is the believing ones who will not perish and have eternal life. God sent his son to rescue the believing ones Ones. And so this text is well-known, it is theologically rich, but there's still two theological facets about this text that I don't think many of us really think about. The first one is the idea that our faith has an element to it of what is called already, but not Yet that there's a part of our faith that is already, but not yet. In fact, notice the verse says that those who believe shall not perish, but have eternal life. The word have, I don't know if you realize, but is present tense. It's not future tense. It's not will have, but they have in this moment. In fact, the Greek in, is, is the present subjunctive active tense, right? Which means that having is not only present tense, but it's conditional upon believing, and so in other words, the point that, Paul, that, that John or that Jesus is making is that those who believe, the moment they believe, they possess, they have, by implication, eternal life. They have it right now. And what that means is those who believe not only have eternal life to look forward to, they have it in real time and in the present moment. You see, eternal life is not something that begins when we die. Eternal life begins the moment you believe. For those who have faith, your eternal life has already begun. Eternal life is already here. The believer has eternal life already in the present, but it's not yet fully realized in its fullest sense. This is the already but not yet aspect of our faith. We already have eternal life if we're in Christ, but we've not yet fully seen it come to fruition. We have not fully experienced all that our eternal life will encompass. Eternal life is both already, but not yet in our experience. And it's the same thing with our sin. We have already been saved from sin, but we have not yet fully experienced the full salvation from sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And then one day we will be saved completely from its presence as well. We have already been saved from sin, but in a very real sense, right? We're still being saved from it. It's already, but not yet. We have always, already, all of us have already been redeemed. We know it, we feel it, we experience it, but we also know that we have not fully experienced our full redemption as we continue to live in a fallen, broken world filled full of fallen, broken people in bodies that are subject to frailty and the effects of sin. This is the first theological facet that we see in John 3.16, the already but not yet nature of our faith. The second theological facet, is that we tend the we tend to miss is is how faith actually works. Notice in John three sixteen, Jesus begins with a fact: God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And then he explains what happens to those who trust in that fact. Those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, our faith is about knowing the truth, then trusting the truth. That's what faith is. It's knowing the truth and then trusting the truth. Now, why do I start here this morning with a discussion of the already but not yet nature of faith and with this understanding that our faith is knowing about something and then trusting in what we know to be true? Well, the reason why we start here is because both of these things will help us to get a better handle and understand where Paul is going in this text today. Because theologically speaking, I can spend 36 parts just on these two verses right here. But I won't do that, I promise. So turn with me to Romans chapter six, and we'll begin looking at verse five. Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like the his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the first thing that I think we have to notice is Paul begins with this word for. And as you know, the word for is a conjunction. If you heard me preach any length at time at all, you know that we're going to stop and talk about the conjunctions. Right? The word for connects his ideas together. Right? And so what we need to remember is that what is being said after the word for is connected to what he said before the word for. Which means we need to understand what Paul is about to say has a context So what is the context? Well, we know that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans to explain very clearly what the gospel is and how Christians ought to live in light of the gospel truth. Then in chapters 1 through 4, he explains what the gospel is. And then in chapter 5, Paul begins to unpack the blessings that we receive because of the gospel. And at the end of chapter 5, he explains how the gospel works. He helps us to understand the reason why all of mankind is sinful and under God's wrath and how mankind then can be redeemed by faith in Christ apart from their works. Paul explains that we are all by birth in Adam. We shared Adam's sin and inherited his sin nature. And when when Adam failed to keep the covenant of works and fell from righteousness, we, because of our union with Adam, fell in him. And because of that, we actively sinned and rebelled against God and were and we were enslaved to sin. That is true of all of mankind. But then Paul helps us to see that we were united, as just as we were united with Adam through birth, by faith and spiritual uh, rebirth, we've been removed from Adam and we have been placed in Christ. Adam is no longer a representative before God. Jesus is. Christ is our new covenantal head in the covenant of grace. And as Paul explains in the beginning of chapter 6, which we explored last week, by faith we are no longer united to Adam and his life. We are united to Christ and his life. And in this union, which we celebrate through baptism, we are unified with Christ in his death to sin, his burial, resurrection to new life by faith we are no longer in Adam but we are in Christ and because of that because we've been positionally moved removed from Adam and we've been united with Christ we have been radically transformed in who we are our lives by faith in Christ have by by definition radically changed and as Paul says we are not we are not to live lives enslaved to sin. Remember, he asked the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Right. That's the context of where Paul picks up in this next part of our, our text. And it begins with the word for. And he says, for if we've been, for in light of all of that, we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, what Paul is doing here in this verse is he is establishing the truth of this radical transformation that takes place in the believer. Paul has already explained that the believer cannot live a life enslaved to sin because of his union with Christ, right? He has been radically transformed. And Paul here is validating this transformation. If we are indeed united in Christ's death, We certainly, he says, will be for a fact raised with him. We are verifiably transformed in a radically different way. We have been changed. And and note the word if. What Paul is doing is he's building his argument with an if-then statement. He says if something is true, then the corresponding resulting truth is also true, right? What he's saying is that it logically follows. And he says, if we have been united with Christ, if that actually is true in a death like his, then without a doubt, without question, we will be united with Christ in a resurrection like his. If we died with Christ, we will certainly be raised with Christ. Paul is helping us to see the surety of that truth. But what's the point? The point is, if we have faith in Christ, we have, as he said in the last section, have have died with Christ. If we have faith in Christ, then we have died with Christ. And we, by faith, participated in his death, which is what our baptism symbolizes, And not... even even though that we have not physically died, Christ's death to sin by faith has been credited to us. That's the truth. In a very real sense, his death is our death, which means in a very real sense, we have died to sin along with Christ. And this, again, as we have said, is the already but not yet part of our faith. By faith, we in Christ have already died to sin, though we have not physically died. We have not yet in this life fully escaped sin's influence. We have not yet experienced that. But the truth is we will because Paul assures us just as we are united in to Christ in his death, we will be without question united with him in a resurrection like his. We have already, as Paul explained before, been raised a new life with Christ, but not fully yet. Because a time is coming when we will experience the fullness of the resurrection. And when we do, at that time, we'll be fully rescued from any influence of sin whatsoever. And, and Paul is explaining to the Roman Christians and us by extension that this is the basis then for us not to live in sin here and now. This radical transformation, the truth that we have died with Christ, we have been raised with Christ, we now then are called not to live in sin here and now. Though we are still waiting for the time where we will be on sin's influence, which I think we all look forward to. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Right? We look forward to that. So we're still waiting for a time to be beyond sin's influence, we have already been radically transformed and have the ability right here, right now to live radically different lives. This, again, is the already but not yet nature of our faith. As Christians, we may not be free from these earthly bonds. We may still be battered by our infirmities. We may still even at times succumb to temptation, but we have been given the ability still to live radically different lives. Notice what Paul says next. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This right here is the point that Paul has been driving at in this section. Paul moves from explaining the truth about our radical transformation to the outwork of outworking of this radical transformation. Paul, in this verse is helping us to see that our union with Christ has real world consequences. This radical change in our life is not theoretical. it is it is very real. though it may not yet be fully realized on this side of heaven, there is still a right now impact in our lives today. And it affects our relationships with sin in this real world. Though we may be tempted by sin, we are not its slaves. Brothers and sisters, if there's nothing else that you remember from what I say today, and I don't blame you if you don't remember every sermon I ever preached because sometimes I look back and go, what did I preach on, right? I get it, right? But if you don't remember anything else that I said today, if you're in Christ, you are not a slave to sin. You may fall, you may stumble, you may struggle. You may, like Peter, cry, how he cried out when he fell, looking at the wind and the waves, cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. You might struggle, but you are not a slave to sin. Now, the first thing I wanted to point out that, that, that Paul, the word that Paul used here is the word know. Right? Paul says at the beginning of this verse, we know something. And this is such an important idea for us to keep in mind as we work through this text, because as we said earlier, it points to the truth about the Christian faith that we all need to take a firm hold on. Our faith is a knowing faith. Our faith is Is a knowing faith. Faith is about knowing something and then trusting what we know. Our faith is built on learning and coming to know the truth. That's why we say things. We have come to know God. We have come to know Jesus. We have come to know the Lord. We have come to know the truth. Our faith is a knowing faith. We come to know the truth about our condition before God. We come to know the truth about what Christ has done for us through the proclamation of the gospel. But knowing is not enough. We must then act on the truth that we come to know. And we do that by trusting the truth. That's what faith is. It is knowing the truth and then trusting the truth. And the fruit of that is living then according to the truth. This, by the way, is why I find it funny that those who reject Christ, who, who will stand up and say they cannot see any reason to have faith in Christ, they will say Christians have blind faith not seeing the blinders over their own eyes. Right? They will say that Christians have blind faith. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that's just simply not true. It is simply not true. We do not <clears throat> believe blindly. I did not come to faith because I blindly believed some obscure truth claims that were taught to me in my childhood. I rejected all those truth claims, actually. What happened to me was I was confronted with the fact of my depravity. And then I knew for a fact that I was hopeless as a sinner who needed God to rescue me. And when I heard the gospel, I came to know the truth about what God has done for me, and the hope that he's offering me. And I understood that I was hopeless on my own, but that God had sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live for my righteousness and die for my sins, and the promise was this. If I would believe that truth, I would be justified. I would be saved. Not because of what I did, not because I somehow got right with God on my own, but by believing the truth that I had come to know. That's what faith is. It is knowing the truth and then trusting the truth. And it's not a blind faith, and it is also not a feeling faith. Now, please hear me. If your faith doesn't cause you to feel deep emotions at times, I would question how you really, really know God, right? Because it's hard to stand in the presence of the Lord at times and not be driven to your knees it's hard to look at the, upon the cross and see in Christ cry out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me and not be brought to deep emotions?" But understand, it is not our emotions that the basis of our faith. Our emotions are not the foundation of our faith. As in, in many and this is not a popular truth, right? Because faith is not about your feelings. Our faith in God is, about, is not about subjective emotional experiences, whether, they are, whether they're tearful or whether they're ecstatic. As one group of people would say, right? That their faith was built on some idea that you're going to feel a feeling after reading some book that it might be true. While others would say that their understanding of who God is is built completely and totally On their personal experiences. How they understand who God is is built on their dreams. How how they understand who God is is built completely on their emotional experiences. But our faith is not built on day to day fickle emotions. Our emotions are all fickle. Our emotions all change. We all know this. We have all experienced this. We have all professed dying, I mean, an undying allegiance to, to people only to find out that our feelings for them changed. It happens in all of our lives. All of us have experienced those times when we were passionate, excited about something, only for those those feelings to grow cold. We don't have a faith that is found in our emotions. We have a knowing faith. And because of that, we can be confident in our faith every single day, despite the fact that we will one day not feel it. I know that all of you at times will feel very close to the Lord. If you have been a Christian for any length of time at all, you feel those days when you were super close to the Lord where he feels like like his presence is near, where you feel him speaking into your heart. And then there are days where it seems like he's a million miles away. Our faith is built on the truth of who God is and who we are in light of who God is and what God has done for us in spite of us. We learn and we know the truth, and then we trust in the truth, right? And that becomes of the, the basis of our new life in Christ. And Paul says, we know, we know that ourself was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul says we know this. In fact, the word that he uses here means we know it by experience. We know this because we've experienced it. We know that we have been radically transformed because we have experienced the radical transformation in our lives. The God we once hated, we now love. The sin we once loved, we begin to hate. And Paul uses this sense of knowing in the present tense active, meaning that it's something that we know and that we continue to know. But what is it that we are supposedly know? Well, Paul says that there are three things that deep in our hearts that we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him, right? And we know that this was in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And we know that this was so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul is saying that the radical transformation of being united to Christ leads to a radical change in our lives. In fact, I want you to notice the order here. Our old self was crucified with Christ, Right, right? This led to our body of sin being brought to nothing. And this then leads to us no longer being enslaved to sin. This actually is something that Paul follows up with a real quick summary in verse 7, where he says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Which, by the way, is the answer to the question that Paul asked in verse 2. How can we who died still live in it? Or be enslaved by it? And the answer is we can't. Why? Because of the radical transformation of us being united to Christ in death and resurrection has set us free from bondage of sin. We were in Adam, enslaved to sin. We are now in Christ, set free from slavery to sin. And Paul now walks us through this radical transformation and how it leads to this freedom. And it begins as Paul says, our old self was crucified with him. And this is important for us to get clear about because many people mistakenly think that what Paul is saying when he talks about our old self, that he's talking about our sin nature being crucified with Christ. In fact, that particular understanding has led some people to believe that once they confess Jesus is their Lord, that they no longer ever sin again because they don't have a sin nature anymore. I've had many discussions with even people in our own community who believe that the moment that they said, Jesus is my savior, that they don't have a sin nature and they no longer sin. This just simply doesn't make sense for a number of reasons. First, it doesn't correspond to reality in our own experience. If you have been a believer for any length of time, you know that you still battle a sin nature. I mean, even John said, if we say we're not in sin, we're just, we're liars. Our sin nature, though, you know, is not dead. I mean, it may be weakened, but our sin nature still affects us. If you don't think so, maybe you're really not paying attention to how that sin nature affected you this morning. I know it has affected me, I know that it's affected some when they have driven over here and maybe had somebody cut them off. Secondly, in Galatians, we're told that believers are the ones that crucify their sinful nature. Later on in Romans, we're told that we are to mortify or put to death our flesh, which is reference to our sinful nature. But in this text, we are told that God is the one who is crucifying something. Not to mention, Paul doesn't say that our sin nature was crucified. He says our old self was crucified, or literally, our old man. That's what it really literally means out of the Greek, is it's our old man. In other words, what he's saying is the person we used to be, that person we were, has been crucified. The point that Paul is making is our old life of who we were before Christ has been put to death. But we have to realize as Paul has in mind what he's already been talking about, this idea of who we are in Adam and in Christ. The idea of our headship, who we were in Adam and then who we are now in Christ. And what Paul is saying is who we were in Adam, that old life and all of the attachments of that old life have been crucified with Christ. Our life in Adam is dead which means the consequences of that life have been accounted for. That old life died with Christ so that our sin then comes to nothing. Because of our union with Christ, our sins have been atoned for. We have been set free from the penalty of sin. But that leads to us being set free from the power of sin as well. We know that we are, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, the body of sin might be made useless. Now, we know from the context of this passage and in the context of scriptures broadly, when he says body of sin, Paul is not talking about our physical bodies though our bodies are prone to sin, right, you will never find in the scriptures that our bodies themselves are bad. We were created to have a body. We will have a new resurrected body. But the idea that somehow the body itself is sinful is a Gnostic idea. Right? And so we're not talking about the actual body of sin. What he's talking about when he says body of sin, he is talking about our sin nature often referred to as our flesh. And what he's saying is our old self died in Christ so that our our sin nature may then be brought to nothing. And this expression, brought to nothing, means to be done away with, or it means to be made void, or it means to be rendered powerless. Is probably one of the best expressions. In other words, Paul is reminding us that our old self in Adam has been put to death and the result of that is our sinful nature that once dominated our old self has been made powerless now. Our old sinful nature in this life maybe not isn't dead yet, but in Christ we have a new life and our sinful nature in this new life in Christ has been rendered void or powerless and what Paul is saying is Because of that, then, as a result of that, we are no longer enslaved to sin. The picture that Paul is painting for us is that not only are we saved from the penalty of sin, but we are saved from the power of sin. We are no longer enslaved to it like we once were. There are a lot of Christians who seem to think that they still are that somehow that slave has mastery over them. And I'm not saying that, that sin is not a difficult foe, right? As John Owen said, be killing sin or it be killing you. It will take every opportunity to pop its head up, but we have been set free from its power. We don't have to walk in obedience to it. Why? Because our sinful nature has been rendered powerless. It's been rendered void as Christians. We again may fall into sin. We may stumble into transgressions and even serious, egregious transgressions, but we are not dominated by our sinful nature anymore. Why? Because our old self, who we were in Adam, was put to death. Our old self was put to death. And as Paul affirms, once again, for we, for once, for one who has died, has been set free from sin. In Christ, our old life has been put to death. And because of that, we are set free from sin, free from its penalty and free from its power, which, as I remind you, is the already, but not yet part of our faith. We have certainly been set from free from the bondage of sin and we have been set free from its power But because we still live today, right now, in this moment, a fallen, broken world that is ravaged by sin, in bodies that are ravaged by sin, we are still, at times, influenced by it. But the difference between our old life in Adam and our new life in Christ is that we're not bound to obey it as our master. We are not bound to live under its control as we once did. We, in a very real sense, have been set free, and we are being by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit, continually set free. Sin does not dominate us anymore. And Paul says, We know that. We know that. Knowing that, then, we ought to trust that. We ought to trust the fact that we've been set free. We need to trust the fact. As we face temptation, that the old man has been crucified with Christ and our sinful nature has been rendered powerless. We need to trust the fact when we fall and we stumble headlong into sin, that though that sin may grieve us and though it may break our hearts and though we may face the physical consequences of our sin in this life, sin cannot dominate us, it cannot make us its slaves. And most importantly, it cannot separate us from God's grace because our old self in Adam has been put to death and we have been raised to new life in Christ. Faith is knowing the truth and then trusting in the truth. Notice Paul says in verse 9, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now the word Paul uses here for believe is a word that means to have faith in, or to trust in. In other words, Paul, what he's saying here is if we died with Christ, we now, died with Christ, we know to be true. When we trust, we will also live with him. Because as Paul just said, we are united in a death like his. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that we have died and we trust completely that we will live with him. And the reason for our confidence is verse nine. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ through his resurrection has been permanently set free from death. Death doesn't reign over him. In fact, he reigns over death. And Christ will never die again. But notice he says in verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. Christ's death wasn't simply his body passing away from trauma. His death wasn't simply his heart stopped beating. His death was victory. His death accomplished something. His death conquered sin. And he died, it says, to the penalty, or he died to sin, right? Which means he died to the penalty of sin. He made atonement for our sin, but he also died to the power of sin, rendering it powerless in the lives of those who trust him. Because the truth is Christ didn't die for himself. He died for us. He died for our transgressions. It says, A death he died, he died to sin once for all. He died so that we could go free. And so he died to sin, but he lives his life. The life that was raised, he lives to God, which is the life that he has then given us. You see, in Adam, we died to God. And the life that we lived, we lived to sin. That was the old life. It was our old nature. That's who we were. Remember Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince to the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We lived to sin. In Adam, we were dead to God, but alive to sin. But because of our union with Christ, we now, like Christ, have died to sin. And the life that we live, we now live to God. Again, Ephesians chapter two, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In Christ, we were dead to sin and alive to God. And so that, in light of that truth, this truth that Paul says that we know, Paul then gives us now the admonition of verse 11. And he says to us, and I want you to hear these words. Paul speaking to your heart as much as he is mine. He says, so you must also You also also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now the word Paul uses here for consider, it means to reckon, it means to reason. Actually, it's from the word that we get logic, right? He's saying that, We must logically conclude by all the the truths that we know. We must logically conclude something. See, what Paul is doing is he's building an inescapable argument here. You know, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that our sinful nature might be powerless, so that we might be free from the bondage of sin. And we know that Christ, because of his resurrection, can never be dominated by death again. And we know that if we share in a death like his, we'll be will be raised in a resurrection like his, and the death that he died, he died to sin, and the life he lives, he lives to God. In light of all of that, in light of our union with Christ, in light of the already but not yet nature of our faith, we must consider, we must reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We must logically conclude that in light of who we are in Christ, we are in fact dead to sin, set free from its power, and we are alive to God, the God that we were created for in Christ Jesus. We are alive because we are united to Christ. And Paul is then urging us then to consciously consider or reckon or conclude or use by our reasoning ability that we truthfully are dead to sin and its dominance in our lives and we are alive and at peace with and restored in a relationship with God. We're to reckon that more than that. We're to trust in that. And that is where we need to take seriously this is where we need to take seriously the fact that, we, that faith is knowing the truth and also trusting the truth, which leads to how we apply this radical transformation to our lives. By faith, you have been removed. Hear me, brothers and sisters. By faith, you have been removed from Adam and you've been placed in Christ. And in this union by faith, you were united with Christ in his death and you were united with Christ in his newness of life, which is exactly what your baptism in Christ symbolized. So you know it to be true. So then you need to conclude and trust that truth that you yourself then have died to sin and you are alive to God in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that truth? Do you know it to be true? If you do then now my admonition to you is trust it, believe it. Even if at times you don't feel it. Build your hope on it. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. You have been set free. You have no, you're no longer a slave to sin. Your sin from nature but the power of the Holy Spirit is diminishing day by day and it it continues to be rendered more and more powerless and you have become free now to walk in holiness before God, not as a condition of your salvation, but as the fruit of salvation. And here's the important part. This is true whether you feel it or whether you don't. And for that, I praise the Lord. That the truth of God is true, whether I feel it to be true or not. Because some days you won't feel like you're dead to sin. Let's just be honest. Some days you are not going to feel like you are alive to God. There will be days that you won't feel like your sinful nature has been rendered powerless. But it is still true nonetheless. God in his word says it's true. And so we can know it to be true. We now then as Christians, we need to trust it to be true. We need to trust when we don't feel it, we need to trust it. Even we fall down in our sin, when our sinful nature reaches out and trips us up, when we don't, we need to, we don't need to wallow in our self-pity when that happens. We don't need to run and hide from God when we fall headlong, as if he didn't know that we weren't capable of that. We need to remind ourselves by the truth of God's word, we are not enslaved to sin. And because we are by faith united with Christ, that means it is a fact that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And because of that, there is no sin in your life that you cannot repent of and turn to God in faith. And guess what? You might have to repent of that 10,000 times today, right? It still doesn't change the fact that if you're in Christ, you're dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I'm pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.